So this morning, um, we are continuing on our series in Psalms. In the month of June, we are going to be focusing on looking for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament in the Psalms in particular, right? That's what we're focusing on this month, Christ in the Psalms. And uh, kind of this morning, our theme is Christ our King. Um, for a lot of us, we hear that term. As a matter of fact, you know, one of our, our local you know, parishes, Christ the King, is right down the street from, from our church, a uh, great Catholic church down the street. There's a lot of, across the country, there are a lot of parishes, both you know, Catholic or, and Lutheran in particular. You see a lot of parishes called Christ the King. Um, this idea of Christ as King is not something new. You find all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, lots and lots of references to this theme of Christ as King. So this morning we want to talk about what does that mean, Christ our King? The idea of a king, for a lot of us, we all intellectually understand that, you know, um, a lot of Americans, you know, are fascinated with kings and queens, you know, and you see that in reference in our culture and, you know, how we can't get enough of the royals and what, you know, Harry and Meghan are doing, although they're not royals anymore, apparently, or something like that, you know, um, you know, there's, you know, we're watching, people are watching the TV shows, the, I don't know, the just, I don't watch TV that much. So The Crown, though, I think is something, or The Royals, or the, are those TV shows, right? Okay, right. I'm not going to ask, you know, first service I was saying, well, what are some other names? And someone said, um, oh, what's that, uh, the one, what? Yeah, Game of Thrones. I was like, oh, let's not raise our hands on that one. But, you know, right, <laughs> some people watching Game of Thrones. So there's all these TV shows, movies, right, Lord of the Rings, you know, Black Panther, they all kind of rotate and, you know, they all kind of center around this idea of kings and queens, this fascination that we have, that culture has with the monarchy, kings and queens. And for us as Americans, there's a fascination with it, but we want really probably nothing to do with a king or a queen um, for a variety of reasons. And two in particular probably is Oftentimes, we think of kings and queens that we hear about, and, you know, they're tyrants, and who wants to be, you know, under their authority? Who wants to be under the submission of this tyrant king or this tyrant queen? So we want nothing to do with that. Um, or we think about kings and queens and how they're just figureheads, and they're really meaningless, and, you know, they, they're just, just figureheads. They have nothing to do with my life. Scripture talks a lot about kings and queens. As a matter of fact, uh, Israel and Judah, the two, um, the nation of Israel was broken into two parts. The two nations, Israel and Judah, there was over 40 different kings that were mentioned and one queen that was mentioned in the Old Testament. And out of all these kings and this one queen, there's only about five of them that were even considered good kings or a queen. So our image, our perception of kings and queens is pr probably not the best, but yet there's this fascination, but we don't, you know, we're fascinated with kings and queens and we're fascinated with monarchy, but we don't want nothing to do with it ruling over our lives. And the church has talked about Jesus as king for 2,000 years, since the very beginning, since scripture was written. Um, we've been talking about Jesus Christ as our king, because again, it's a theme that's run, that we see all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, prophetically, uh, speaking of the Messiah, the one who would be anointed, who would come and rescue Israel, and that we see that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the New Testament talks about Jesus as king. Um, the, the Catholic Church, uh, the last Sunday before Advent starts, uh, the Catholic Church has been celebrating Christ the King Sunday for hundreds of years. Back in 1925, there was this big push by uh, Pope Pius XI 
to really reintroduce in the, within the Catholic Church Christ the King Sunday. And Pope Pius said, you know, with, with the world wars and everything and with the view, that, the view that culture has of Jesus Christ, we want to reemphasize that Jesus is our King. So it was a real big push. It's still celebrated the last Sunday before Advent. And not just in the Catholic Church, but in the Lutheran Church, a lot of Episcopalian churches. So those more traditional, denominational churches will celebrate Christ the King Sunday. But in a church like ours, in a lot of non-denominational churches, you really don't hear a lot about Christ the King. Some churches will focus on, as a matter of fact, it was... Uh, Interesting, Chris and Gabe had gone to a conference about a month or so ago and, and they said they went to a church on a Sunday morning and they were actually celebrating Christ the King on that Sunday. He said it was a little bit different, you know, and I said, well, what, why was it so different? Let me borrow this chair here, excuse me. He said it was a little bit different. I'm like, well, what was so different about it? He said, and we had, just so you know, we had had this, you know, this Christ the King Sunday on, you know, for, long, for months and months. So he's like, yeah, they, they took a chair and they, they draped the chair in a robe and then they put the chair up and they carried the chair around the room and they were shouting and cheering, you know, but Jesus is our King. And of course the chair was empty because, you know, it was symbolizing, recognizing that, you know, Jesus is our King. You know, I thought that was a little bit weird. We won't do that here, but. <laughs> well, we kind of just did it, but not really. <laughs> I was just demonstrating what that church did, not what we would do, right? It was a dance team and, you know, you know, all that stuff. And that's cool. That just, you know. But we don't, we don't really talk about Christ as our king. Well, what does that mean? How do I apply that? I mean, okay, intellectually, I get it, but. What does it not mean for Christ to be the king? And what does it mean? Because oftentimes when we think about kings and queens and we think, oh, you know, again, they're tyrants and Jesus was anything but a tyrant. They ruled with power and Jesus came to serve. Kings are always served. And Jesus was like, no, no, I came to serve others. They were thinking about all this wealth and Jesus had no place even to lay his head. You know, he, he gave everything away and he was generous and serving other people. And that's so different than what we think about of a king or a queen in the monarchy. Jesus was so different as a king. But again, it's this theme that we see all throughout the Bible. So we should talk about it. What does it mean for me to say Jesus is my king? You know, how, am I, how, am I, how am I supposed to apply that to my life? Luke chapter 24 uh, is our first passage I want us to kind of briefly look at um, because w we forget that the Bible is all about Jesus. Old and the New Testament is all about Jesus. There's a story in Luke 24. I'll kind of paraphrase it for you. You guys can kind of look as I'm paraphrasing it. Jesus has died and he's rose again and he's walking with two of his disciples on this road to a city called Emmaus. And they don't recognize him. And they're like, hey, do you not know what's been going on the last couple days in Jerusalem? And they're telling Jesus about himself. And Jesus starts talking to these disciples of his who should recognize and should know him. He says, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, 
wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? They're like, well, Jesus must not have been the Messiah. He must not have been the chosen one. Jesus must not have been the king because he suffered and he died. He's like, oh, you guys, you, 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 know, you find it hard to believe that the whole Bible talks about me. The prophets predicted that I would have to suffer. Verse 27 says, then Jesus took them, these disciples, he took them through the writings of Moses. In other words, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, first five books, the Torah. He took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And he was explaining from the rest of Scripture, Proverbs and Psalms. He was explaining from Scripture the things concerning himself. He's like, guys, don't you understand? All this is about me. Let me explain this to you. Man, what a sermon that must have been as he's walking with his disciples. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I have to remind myself. There was a Bible. I, I couldn't find it this week, but there was a Bible I bought years and years ago. It's called, you know, Bibles sometimes have themes, right? You know, like a men's Bible or a women's Bible, you know, and, you know, rather just Bibles. They're just like, they have themes. There was one Bible I had bought years ago, and the theme was Jesus on every page. Because they wanted us to remember, like, oh, you know what? You should be able to find Jesus on every page of the Bible. Where is Jesus at on this page? And I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just, you know, slow, not very smart. But sometimes I struggle. Like, oh, I don't see how this relates to Jesus. I'm kind of like the disciples. He's like, don't you understand? And I feel like that. I'm like, I don't know, Jesus. He was reminding them that it was all about him. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, you know, who were trained and educated and scholared and schooled in the Bible in the Old Testament. He said, hey, you guys, you religious people, but you don't have a relationship? He said, you guys search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures, they point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me and to receive this life. They knew the scriptures, but they failed to recognize that they applied or they were about Jesus Christ. They missed Jesus. They were super religious, but they missed Jesus. They refused to let Jesus change their lives. I wrote in your notes kind of the first fill-in this morning is that all scripture is about Jesus. That he can be found on every page. Like, we need to be reminded of that this morning. That as we read God's word, it's about Jesus. It's about finding him on every page. The Psalms that we've been studying the last couple of months are the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. There's over a hundred quotations or references in the New Testament, just a short part of the Bible. There's over a hundred times that it refers to or points to, or there's a specific quote from the Old Testament Psalms in the New Testament. Over a hundred times you find those things. I wrote on our notes this morning that the New Testament continually refers to the book of Psalms to reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. When we talk about Jesus as our king, it's who he is. And then we need to think about, well, what do kings do? Not as tyrants, but what a king Jesus come to do. 
there are 18 prophecies from the book of Psalms that we find in the New Testament specifically that refer to the Messiah to King Jesus. There's a couple of things I wanted to just kind of point out this morning, just kind of just, you know, we'll talk about them a little bit more over the next couple of, over this next month. But Psalm 41 verse 9 says this. This is a, a prophecy now applied to whoever was writing at that moment, but it was also foretelling who Jesus, who the Messiah would be. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. We find this referenced in the New Testament. Who does that refer to? Anybody? Right, Judas. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew records these words. Jesus replied, One of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. How terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would have been far better for that man if he had never been born. Jesus is referring back to Psalm 41. Specifically, it was a prophecy. It was foretelling who the Messiah would be so people could recognize who God's chosen one would be. Psalm 22 Another passage, very, very familiar. Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18 says this. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. We see these exact words and this exact situation happen in John chapter 19. Right? When Jesus is going to the cross, says the soldiers crucified him. They divided his clothing among the four of them. They took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. And, they divide, and then they divided his garments amongst themselves, and they threw dice for my clothing. Again, we see in the book of Psalms this prophecy about who the Messiah would be. So they wouldn't miss him. John chapter 20, Jesus is speaking. He shows up to his disciples again after the resurrection. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands from the nails and in his side. Verse 25, Thomas is speaking. He says, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Again, referring back to this Old Testament passage in Psalms. Again, the New Testament repeatedly refers to the book of Psalms revealing who Jesus is and what he came to do. Christ our King, Christ the King, is this theme that we see all throughout the Bible. There are seven Psalms in particular. They're called the Royal Psalms or the Messianic Psalms. Psalms 93, 4, 5, 96, 97, 98, 99. Now there's 150 of them, but these Psalms in particular as people study the scriptures and say, say the book of Psalms, they say, oh, these Psalms in particular are the Messianic Psalms because time and again we see these words fulfilled in Jesus Christ as king. God is king in Jesus Christ's fulfillment of that. So I call them the royal Psalms. So as you read them, you'll see Jesus Christ in these Psalms. Again, lots of New Testament passages this morning. I won't take time to read them all, but you know, lots of New Testament passages. Again, not just the Old Testament, but New Testament refer to Jesus as king. Luke 1, 32. 
the angel Gabriel's coming and he's speaking. He says that Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see this royalty, right? You see this messianic. You see Jesus as king. In the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 17, again, you see this idea that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It says, together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and he is King of all kings. We see this theme. John chapter 18, again, Jesus is speaking. He's before Pilate. Pilate's like, are you the king? He says, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. My kingdom is different than your kingdom. My kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea that the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, would be king. So let's take a moment in Psalm 93. That we don't know who wrote these words. But it's this messianic prophecy about the king. It says, Psalm 93, verse 1, it says, The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty. And he's armed with strength. The world stands firm and it cannot be shaken. Your throne, O Lord, has stood from time eternal you yourself are from the everlasting past. In other words, Jesus, you are the king, the Messiah. You've been, you are eternal. The floods have risen up, O Lord. The floods have roared like the thunder. The floods have lifted their pounding waves. Although creation is powerful, God. Jesus, you are mightier, verse 4. But, the mightier, but mightier than the violent raging of the seas. Mightier than the breakers on the shore. The Lord is above, mightier than these. The psalmist, the most powerful thing that he could think of was the ocean and the waves and the continual pounding of all that, even the chaos of that. But the psalmist says, the king, the Messiah, is mightier than all of creation, mightier than all the chaos. Some of you might be thinking this morning, oh yeah, I need to internalize that, that Jesus is my king and I've got some chaos in my life and Jesus you are mightier than the chaos in my life. And even that phone, you're mightier than that. <laughs> it's all right. Jesus, you're mightier. You're mightier than all these things. Verse 5 ends, says, your royal laws cannot be changed. Your reign, O Lord, is holy and forever and ever. Tremper Longman was, is a, is a well-known theologian, and he's written extensively about the book of Psalms and in this, this uh, Psalm 93 in particular, and he wrote the following words. He says, Christians celebrate God's kingship in the person of Jesus. Christians celebrate God's kingship in Jesus, the anointed King Messiah who has come to establish God's kingdom. When he stilled the waves, when Jesus walked on the water, he showed that he is the God who controls the forces of chaos. What does it mean for Jesus to be my king? A couple things that you might want to write down in your notes there. There's about four things in particular that I thought of this past week. What does it mean for Jesus to be my king? Number one, it means I am a citizen. That's your first fill. And I'm a citizen of heaven. Paul reminds us of this in Philippians 
Although we're Americans, we, we're in this country, but our citizenship, where we really belong to, our nationality is not of this world. We're citizens of heaven. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I'm, not, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm passing through. Our church is a little colony of Christ working here on earth. I'm a citizen of heaven. My loyalty is to King Jesus above everything and everyone else. I belong there. I'm a citizen of heaven. This world is not my home. So that means I shouldn't get super comfortable because I'm a citizen of heaven. And I'm to hold things lightly, not tight-fistedly, because I don't belong here. Relationships, I'm going to hold loosely. The finances that he's entrusted me with, I'm going to hold those things loosely. All that I have, I'm going to hold loosely rather than tightly. Because I don't belong here. I'm not going to get comfortable. If I get too comfortable, then I'm not going to take risks. If I get too comfortable, then I'm not going to be effective. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm just passing through. Secondly, what does it mean that Christ is my king? That means that I'm an ambassador for Christ. Again, Paul echoes these words in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've invited Jesus into your heart, into your life, if you've made Jesus your king, if he's King Jesus to you, then you're a new creation. And we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. If Jesus is your king, you are an ambassador. Charles Hodge, who again was a great theologian, is no longer alive, was talking about this, talking about how we are ambassadors. He said, what does it mean to be an ambassador? He says, well, an ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. An ambassador does not speak in his own name. He does not speak on his own authority. What he communicates is not his own opinions or demands, but simply what he's been told or commissioned to say. His message derives no part of his importance or trustworthiness from him. I feel like, you know, I've shared this with you guys before. You know, I haven't done this for years, but, you know, I've shared with you guys that I have this goal to lead five people to Christ outside of our, our church community, people who are not connected to our church. And, and every time I go door to door and I knock on people's doors and we do this little spiritual survey in our neighborhood and around here and we say, hey, you know, do you have a church that you go to? And they're like, no, yes, whatever. And then we say, we ask other questions. And one of the questions we, we started recently saying, you know, a lot of people have heard the word gospel, what does gospel mean to you? And then all of a sudden, we get to explain to these people what the gospel means, that God created us to have a relationship with us, that he's made a way for us to have a relationship with him. You know, we go on and on. And every time I feel like I'm God's ambassador, I'm an ambassador for Jesus in this moment. He does not speak in his own name. He, he does not speak on his own authority. He does not communicate his own opinions or demands. Because Jesus is my king, I'm an ambassador at work. Secondly, 
Or thirdly, because Jesus is my king, I'm not just an ambassador, but I am the king's representative. Again, Paul talks about that. If we're in Christ, we're, we're, we're an ambassador for Christ. He's making his appeal through us. I'm his representative. I'm not just a messenger, but I'm a representative. When other people look at my lives, it's not just the words that I say. I'm not speaking my own words. We're not called to speak our own words, our own opinions. When people come to you and ask you, hey, can you tell me, what do you, what do you think about this? Well, you're supposed to be a messenger, an ambassador. They should see our lives as a representative. You know, when, when, I, when I do weddings, one of the things that I like to say when a couple's getting married, I say, Lucas and Jenny, they're a, they're a married couple back here. I say, as people get to know you, may they see a reflection of God's love for them through your love for one another. That always just is like, oh, that's what marriage is supposed to be about. When people look at Lucas and Jenny, they see the way that they love one another. As a Christian couple, as a man and a woman who love one another, as a husband and wife, I want other people to see a reflection of God's love for them for the way that Lucas is so tender and gentle and kind to Jenny. The way that he leads her and loves her. I want people to see that. And I'm supposed to be a representative of, of King Jesus. That when people see my life, they see I'm his representative. Again, Charles Hodges goes on. He says, talks about being an ambassador or representative. He says, ambassadors are the king's representatives. At the same time, he is more than a mere messenger. He represents his sovereign. We recognize, of course, that we're not only messengers sent to speak to the nations of the world. We also live here. So how can we live as ambassadors in the world while fighting the temptation to look and to live like the world. Jesus, you're my king. And I know I'm called to speak for you. I know I'm called to be your messenger, but I'm called to be your representative. And I'm called to live in this world, but yet not look and live just like everybody else around me. Jesus, you are my king. What I say and how I live should be different. Is that happening in your life? Is Jesus your king? So lastly, let me close with this. Like there's like six or seven things here that I was thinking about this week again. Well, how do I live? How do I live as a messenger, as an ambassador, as a representative? How do I live as Jesus is my king? So there were some things that I just, whatever, seven sayings, you know, that I kind of came up with. How do I live as an ambassador for the king? Number one, I tell myself that I am directed by my king. Jesus, you direct me. You tell me. You speak to me. You guide me. Jesus, you direct me. I submit to that. I yield to that. And also, not only do you direct me, but Jesus, I'm going to follow you. King Jesus, I will follow you. And I'll follow you, number three, and I'll walk in a way in a manner worthy of you, Jesus. It's like, oh. The things I do, the places I go. I'm an ambassador for Jesus. And I'm walking into this place. People know. Help me to walk in a manner worthy of you, Jesus. God, Jesus, remind me that I'm a foreigner. I don't belong here. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. 
the, the, the fifth one, I will live as if this world is not my own. I'm going to hold on to things loosely because of that. Jesus, you've entrusted me with these things. The money that I have, it doesn't belong to me. You own it all, Jesus. You're the king. You're my king. I'm here to serve you, to follow you. I trust you, King Jesus. I trust you. I'm a foreigner living in this world. I'm not going to get comfortable living here. And finally, Jesus, because you're my king, I will ask for and trust you to defend me rather than trying to defend myself. Jesus, I trust you. King Jesus, I trust you to defend me, to protect me. Jesus, you're my king.